Uh, If you have your uh, Bible, your phone, you can open up to Luke chapter uh, 23, as that's where we're going to be today. Now, when my wife Shannon and I uh, were dating back in college university, we would come over here to Halifax to visit with her family, uh, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and I always enjoyed those times. Now, I knew that her father, our lead pastor, Greg, is a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. I'm a Maple Leafs fan. And so uh, I was going, okay, this is something we have in common. But I remember the first time we sat down to watch uh, a hockey game together, Hockey Night in Canada. And the Leafs, I can't remember who they were playing, but it just was not a good game for the Leafs. And they they were taking some bad penalties and and just calls were being made against them that weren't always right. And I remember one uh, penalty that a ref called. Greg is like, come on, ref. And he's yelling at the TV. And and I'm just kind of sitting there going, man, like, they can't hear you, and you're really, really into this game to a degree that I'm, I'm not invested at. But they, they keep playing, and, and the Leafs score a goal late in the third. They tie it up, and I'm watching the game there uh, with Greg. I see the goal, but I wasn't expecting what came out of Greg. Like He jumped up. He's like, yeah! Anybody who was sleeping in the house was awake at that moment. And I'm just going, like, you are a fan on a totally different level Uh, than I am. And and just kind of experiencing Greg in that context caused me to view him a little bit differently. And that's kind of what happens. The situations that you see people in, it it shapes kind of what you think of them or or, or who they are in your eyes. Like kind of an example that probably happened for me recently was a couple weeks ago, I wanted a coffee. I went to a Tim Hortons and uh, the line in the drive-thru was just way, way too long. I was impatient. So I parked the car, jumped out, ran inside and I go up to the cash. I I place my order and I I can't understand why the cashier is kind of giving me weird looks. Uh, I can't understand why everybody who's in line behind me is just giving me extra space more than the social distancing. I was going like, do I smell today? I thought I showered and everything, whatever. Um, And so I leave, I go out, get in my car and I look in the rear view mirror and I I had done the unpardonable. I had forgotten to wear a mask. Um, And and I I was ridden with guilt and I'm going like, oh, what will people think of me? Uh, They'll they'll think I'm one of those people who are are anti-mask. And it's like, no, I'm just a moron. That's, that's, That's the reality of the situation. But seeing me in that context, people would have formed kind of an opinion about who I am based off of that. And the situations we encounter people in, that influences our understanding of who they are. Now, we're in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 and 33, uh, kind of where we're starting. And if you look there, you see that it says Jesus was crucified between two other criminals. Um, Depending on what translation you use or which gospel you might be reading from, it it would say something like thieves or robbers. Now, these guys aren't nailed to a cross because they stole a loaf of bread. Like the Romans didn't kind of escalate things that quickly when somebody did something like that. You weren't crucified for minor crimes. And so they've probably done something pretty heinous. Um, Chances are they're insurrectionists. They've rebelled against Rome's authority, and Rome is making an example of these two Men. Now, being on the cross is not going to be good for Jesus' public image. Like, 
Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he has Jesus crucified essentially to save himself because uh, the Jewish leaders come to Pilate there. They want Jesus dead because Jesus is causing them problems. And, and they say, like, Jesus has claimed to be uh, a king, but we have no king but Caesar, which is a very dangerous claim um, as they are under in a theocracy where God is supposed to be their king. And they're saying uh, Caesar is king, but, but they go, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate's like, I don't think he's guilty. And they're like, well, if you don't do something about it, we're going to go to your boss and we're going to report you. And at that point, Pilate's like, you know what? Let's just, let's just deal with this. And he has Jesus crucified. Now to see Jesus on the cross between two criminals, you're going to form some opinions about him if you're witnessing that. It would be easy to write him off and you go, okay, birds of a feather flock together. He must be a criminal. He must have done something very uh, terrible. That's why he is on the cross and you might think he's bad, he, he's evil, that, that he's a lost cause. You might see him as a failure or as an imposter. And this is what the crowds see Jesus as. And so Luke chapter 23, verse 35, it says, The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews save yourself. Now, it's easy when you're in a crowd that's worked up, like maybe mob mentality, to kind of go along with what the crowd is, is, is doing. And that's what happens in Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, where it tells us that the two criminals that are crucified, Jesus, begin to mock him as well. Like, it's, it's kind of fun. like you're nailed to a cross and you're mocking a guy who's nailed to a cross, but this is what takes place. They're, they're taunting him. And Luke chapter 23, verse 39, it tells us, what one of the criminals says. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, context is everything. Again, um, he's, he's not confessing faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He's mocking Jesus. This is, this is sarcasm. And, and so he has no belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Now put yourself in this guy's shoes. There's no real reason to believe that he is the Messiah because he's nailed to the cross just like you are. And so by all accounts, um, it doesn't look like Jesus is any type of savior. If any metric you use, Jesus looks like kind of he's lost. He's failed. He's a pretend king that it came to nothing. He's not who he claimed to be based off those, those appearances. But something takes interesting uh, and unexpected kind of takes place in this moment. In Luke chapter 23, verse 40, it says, but the other, so the, the other criminal answered, the, the criminal who's mocking Jesus, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so based off these texts, we're going, one of these criminals has changed his mind. He's, he's, he's changed what he believes about Jesus. He has a change of heart and he genuinely believes that Jesus is a, a king of a kingdom. Now we're going to go, okay, what, what produces this change of heart? What, what makes this criminal um, change his mind that, that Jesus, while nailed on the cross, is actually the Savior, the Messiah. And, and here's the frustrating thing is Luke, none of the Gospels really tell us why this guy changed his mind. We're actually kind of left to speculate. And so maybe 
maybe this, this criminal, when he was a free man, he was uh, wandering the streets of Jerusalem, walking by, and, and, he, and he heard Jesus teaching a crowd at one point. And maybe for some, something just clicks for him in this moment, and he, and he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it's possible. Maybe he sees the way Jesus conducts himself while he's on the cross, and it sparks something for him. Now, up to this point, all based off kind of the order of events, when he put all the Gospels together, from what we understand, Jesus has only said one thing, and it's kind of this well-known statement, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And, and so it could be that, and I think this is a lesson for us to never underestimate the power of our witness. Like if, if you've ever, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you've ever been on a diet, um, you know that sometimes there's a cheat day. And so the cheat day is this. For six days of the week, you eat healthy, you stick to the plan. Day seven or cheat day, you just eat whatever you want. You get all those cravings out of your system. You go crazy. Then the next day, it's back to the diet plan. And so it's like you're eating healthy most of the time. And they're going, that should count. Now, as a disciple, as a Christian, maybe, have you ever craved a, a cheat day? Like, I, I'm not talking about something where six days of the week, you, you follow the Christian worldview, the Christian ethic. Day seven, you just have permission to go nuts. You beat people up. You rob banks. You do whatever you want. I'm not talking about that. But when I say a cheat day as a disciple, and we might crave them, it's kind of, of this, that, that every once in a while, that we wish we could be exempt uh, from the Christian worldview that we could do what we want to do on our difficult days, those tough days where we just want to do what inside we feel like doing. And so the day where nothing is going right, the day where you receive bad news, the day where the kids are annoying, those days you would say, man, this is just one of my worst days. Maybe you, you just say like, I just want to do what I want to do. Kind of respond to the whatever you want to call it inside, those like um, natural instincts to lash out or, or get even. And here's the thing, when we're going through those times, we can convince ourselves, you know, I deserve to act how I want, how I feel like acting. And we'll go, I'll, I'll just kind of take a cheat day from the Christian ethic. And then when things get better, I'll return to doing what Jesus wants me to do. But even on Jesus's absolute worst day, like he, he's, he's been um, found guilty when he's not guilty. He's been mocked, he's been spit on, he's been whipped, he's been crucified. Jesus doesn't take a break from living out the things that he called his disciples to do all throughout his ministry. He doesn't take a selfish moment, even though we go, man, he has every excuse to take a selfish moment. But he continues to live out the Christian ethic and what he's taught. And so why does Jesus do this? It's because Jesus knows that those, those difficult days, those tough days, those moments in your life where, where it's painful, where it's hard, those are often the most fruitful ones when it comes to our witness. Like, anybody can live out the Christian ethic and, and be a good person when things are going well. But it's when things are difficult and we, we hold to the teachings of Christ. When, when things are tough and we, we want to do what we want to do, but we continue to live out the teachings of Christ, that impacts people. And, and here's like, we, we think people are paying a lot of attention to our lives all the time. And the reality is they're, they're not. Um, but 
I will say this. When something bad happens to us, maybe when we get the diagnosis, maybe when there's an accident, maybe when our lives are starting to collapse down and around us, people actually kind of turn their gaze towards us and they're going, how are they going to react to all of this? And it's often when things are most difficult and painful that our witness actually has the opportunity to shine the brightest, to make the biggest impact. And so, like, think about this. Jesus, who has taught his disciples to love your enemies, is modeling it on the cross as they are crucifying him. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Like, I, I think that had to impact the criminal, that, that he would have to take notice. Now, the truth is, we don't know what changed the criminal's heart. Um, Maybe it was a combination of Jesus' teaching and his, uh, his character. Maybe it was revealed to him in a supernatural way. Like, again, we don't really know. But something caused this criminal to change his mind about Jesus. And so we never know what's going to cause, or kind of be that thing that triggers somebody's belief that Jesus is Lord and Savior. But, but here is what we do know. That The way Jesus handled his worst day didn't dissuade this criminal from believing in him. The way this guy, the way Jesus handled his worst day did not dissuade the criminal from believing in him. Now, Matt Chandler, he wrote, remember that everyone you meet is eternal. You have never met someone who will cease to exist one day. And so what he's kind of saying is this, the grocery store clerk, your barista, your barber, uh, the person you pass every day as you walk your kid to school, your neighbor, your friend has an eternal soul that they will live forever. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20 tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ. And so everything that we say and do either pushes people towards Christ and causes them to believe in the truth of Christianity or it pushes them away and causes them to disbelieve what Christianity says is true. And so my, my point in all of this is never underestimate the power of your witness in the big things and in the little things. Never underestimate the power of your witness when things are good, but even on your worst day, because we never know how and when seeds are being planted. And, and here's, here's what we know. A single traje- uh, remark can change the trajectory of a person's life forever. Now, if you, if you read through the Gospels and you, you see the events surrounding the, the, the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, here's what you will never find. You will never find uh, any of Jesus' disciples at the cross going, man, Jesus is going to be great when we come into your kingdom. It's going to be so awesome when you are resurrected and you're the king and, and you're doing your thing. It's, it's going to be great. Like, where are Jesus' disciples? They're, they're AWOL. They're hiding. They're scared. None of them envision Jesus being a king of a kingdom at this point. Their vision of a kingdom has died along with Jesus on the cross. And so they've got no kind of visions of him coming back to rule over a kingdom beyond this life. But the criminal does. And so even while Jesus is is on the cross, he's dying, this man still believes that Jesus has a kingdom that goes beyond this grave. And when the criminal um, asks Jesus to remember me when you come into your kingdom, what he's doing is he's confessing faith that he believes Jesus is who he says he is. And he understands something about Jesus' kingdom that Jesus' followers even though they spent two and a half years with him, and he, he said it clearly, like in verses, uh, or John chapter 18, verse 36, where he goes, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Jesus' disciples, even after he'd say stuff like that, are going, so Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom in this world? They, they didn't get it, but this, this crucified man does. He believes that Jesus is going to come into his kingdom, even when nearly everybody else has written him off as a messianic pretender. And this is evidence of tremendous faith. And faith sees beyond what is seen. Faith looks to the the promises of God. It sees God's track record and it knows that God is good to do what he's promised to do even when it looks like we're losing, even when it looks like everything is against us, even when everything looks like a disaster. Faith sees beyond that to what God has promised. Now in high school, one of my good friends, um, I went to Bible camp with him, uh, youth group, all those things, as we got older, he began to find the Christian worldview, the Christian ethic, the Christian faith a little too restrictive. He didn't like what it had to say about like drinking, about sex, about how you handled your money and some other things. He was like, that, I, I don't like that. But he wanted all of the things that come with, with being a Christian, mostly heaven. And so he believed he had come up with what was a genius plan. His plan was this, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it, and then I'm going to go to heaven. And here's what he thought, is that he'll do what he wants for most of his life, and then if he gets the timing right, he'll repent and ask God for forgiveness at the end, and he'll, he'll go to heaven um, because he asked forgiveness. He, he'd seek mercy and grace from God. And so we're like 17-year-old theologians, and we're going, is, is that going to work? Like, can, can, you, can you do that? Like, can you live 70, 80, 90 years, however many years God grants you on this earth, basically in rebellion to God, doing whatever you want, come to him at the last minute and go, God, I want forgiveness and get it. Can you? And so this is what we were wondering. Now, from what we can tell about this criminal, he's probably made some poor life decisions. Like, you don't get put on a cross because you're a stand-up guy. He's there for a reason. Now, based on Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, he's, he goes to the cross. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, but something changes. And just before his death, he's asking for forgiveness. And so is it too late for this criminal? Can he, can he change his mind at the last minute, confess faith and receive forgiveness, or, or is it too late? Like, do deathbed confessions work? Do deathbed conversions work? Well, Matthew, or Luke chapter 23, verse 43, it says, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so what Jesus does not say is, it's too late. He doesn't say, submit an application, give some character references, we'll see how this pans out. Jesus doesn't say to him, I don't know, you're a lost cause, um, I've kind of written you off, you're not really kingdom material, no. Like Jesus sees this man's faith, and he doesn't just say, yeah, he actually answers with a promise. A promise, he says, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so what we see is this, that as long as there's breath in someone's lungs, in a person's lungs, it's never too late for them to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive forgiveness for sin. Now, with that, I'm not recommending my friend from high school's plan for a number of reasons. Like first, you never know when the end of your life might come. Um, we read about people who lose their lives unexpectedly every day. Like they, they wake up thinking it's going to be a normal day and then there's a medical disaster. There's, there's an accident. There's some natural disaster. Like think about your own life. 
you've probably had some close calls where it's like, man, that, that could have been it. Car accidents. A few years ago, I almost got hit by a bus. Somebody literally pulled me back, saved my life, I would say. And so if your plan is like, I'm going to do my thing till the end, I'm going to time it right just before I die, repent, then I'll get all the benefits of heaven. It's like you're kind of banking on you knowing when it's going to be the end. And, and scripture would say, like, you don't even know what's happening tomorrow. Like, you don't have that great of an idea. The second thing is you're betting on you believing the gospel when you are older. And I want to be abundantly clear on this. God does not move away from us, but we move away from God. And, and so if, if your plan is kind of like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do my thing for this amount of years. It's, you're not really setting yourself up to believe the gospel is true at the end of your life. Because what I've seen is like over the years, my friend has drifted further and further away from God. And, and to ignore God all your life, again, is not setting yourself up to believe that the gospel is true at the end of your life. And so what we have to understand is that whether we're a believer or not, our relationship to God, we're never staying neutral. We're either moving closer to God as we pursue him or we're moving further away from God as we kind of just brush him off and ignore him. But, but here's what I find encouraging about this, is that what someone believes about Jesus today isn't necessarily what they're going to believe about him tomorrow because people change their minds about Jesus every day. And so if, if you're a believer, I think you've probably got somebody in mind that you're going, man, I want them to believe. And so I would say, don't stop praying for your child. Don't stop praying for your friend, for your family, worker, family member, your coworker, whoever it is, because people change their minds about Jesus every day. Now, something Jesus said a lot when he was teaching, we already referenced it, is this, truly I tell you. And even on the cross, what we see is Jesus is the same a preacher. He's the same teacher. He's the same man that he was when he was off the cross. That, that he speaks with the same confidence and assurance that, that he did throughout his ministry. And, and I think this is important. I think we have to take notice of this, this stuff because it shows us that Jesus is not surprised by the cross. Like, again, if, if Jesus was going like, did not know this was part of God's plan. He ends up on the cross. Don't you think his statements would be like, God, what, what's happening? Don't you think he would stop kind of talking in that way, carrying himself as a king of a different kingdom, promising the kingdom to other people? Like, don't you think he would just be like, well, whatever, this is meaningless. But he, but he doesn't. He continues to, to teach and promise the kingdom to people. And even on the cross, Jesus is still committed to his mission and message. He's not defeated. He's doing exactly what he came to do. He's releasing slaves to sin. He's making them citizens of his kingdom. The cross is the way that all of this happens. And Jesus is about to die to atone for that man's sins and open up heaven as a gift for that man to enjoy. And like, think about this. This guy goes from being a criminal of the world to being a citizen of heaven. And this is the pattern for every person who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That you, you were a criminal. You were a rebel to God's law in the world. But through Jesus, God changes you. He forgives you. He transforms you through the work of his Holy Spirit. And you become a citizen of heaven. You become a child of God. And so every person is going to be in heaven because they accepted Jesus' atoning work for their sin on the cross. Now, when Jesus says paradise in this text, most commentators are going, he's speaking of heaven. It's, it's synonymous with heaven. 
And heaven is, is the dwelling place of God. It's going to be the eternal home of all those who've trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, those who are righteous. It's described as a place of, of rest and, and security, of, of bliss, where there's no sorrow, evil, or death. But when you read Scripture when you, about heaven, you actually don't get a lot of details, only generalities. And the reason is this, is that heaven's probably so qualitatively different and, and better than what we've experienced here on earth that any comparisons we make just aren't going to really work that well. Like, we can't comprehend how good heaven's going to be. However, there's probably a specific reason that Jesus uses the word paradise here in this text. In, in the, the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when you read about the Garden of Eden, so God has created everything, it's perfect, there's no sin. In the Garden of Eden, God is in relationship with Adam and Eve, but then comes the fall, and God um, escorts humanity out of the garden, out of paradise because of their sin. He doesn't want them to eat from the tree of, the, of life and live forever, and he escorts them out. But Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And, and he's probably hinting at the restoration of the intimate personal fellowship humanity had with God before the fall. And he's saying it's going to be possible again because of what I'm about to do on this cross. And this is why texts like Romans chapter 21, verses 3 and 4, it emphasizes the who's of heaven more than the, the, the what's or the things of heaven. It speaks about heaven being with God the Father and God the Son. It's, it's, it's them who makes heaven heaven, not the things. He's the one who wipes away every tear from his people's eyes. And heaven is where believers will experience complete fellowship with God the Father and the Son for all eternity. And one of my favorite verses concerning heaven is 1 Corinthians 2.9, where it says, What God has planned for people who love him is more than eyes have seen or ears have heard. It has never even entered our minds. And so essentially what it's saying is this. Heaven is better than I could ever portray it to be. Heaven is better than you could ever imagine it to be. Now maybe you've wondered, okay, what happens when I die? What happened when this criminal died? And Jesus clarifies some stuff for those who are believers. One, one common belief about when we die is, is soul sleep, that at the time of our death, our conscious existence uh, kind of ends while we wait in the grave for our resurrected bodies to be restored when Jesus returns. So it's kind of like this. When you die, you become unconscious, you go into the grave, you have a really good nap, and then when Jesus returns, um, you're resurrected and you're conscious again. Now, um, here Jesus is saying something that's completely different. He's not saying your soul is going to sleep until the resurrection. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be present with him. And so that's what, that's what Jesus is saying, is that when we die, our souls will be present with him. And if, if you're kind of a skeptic to all this, if you're going like, that sounds crazy, if you don't believe Christianity, I just want you to stop and consider this, that you know that there is more to you than just the physical. You know that you are more than organic material and like hormones reacting with one another and like signals being sent back and forth. You know you are more than that. And scripture would say you have a soul, an eternal soul that has been created by God to live with him for eternity. And so this is why when a Christian dies, we can't actually say they have gone home to be with the Lord. Now, another misconception um, surrounding Jesus' death is clarified in this text. Uh, another thing that has been taught is that when, when Jesus died following his death, that he went to hell 
for three days. And some people kind of building on this says that while he was in hell for three days, Satan tormented him um, as Jesus had, was paying for our sin there. But, but where is Jesus saying he's going to be that very day? It's going, I, I'm going to be in paradise, is what Jesus is saying. And so that's, that's where the criminal is. That's where Jesus is. And the doctrine of the descent into hell is a man-made creation. And there's no text in the New Testament that conclusively supports that belief. And much of it comes from a misunderstanding of a later addition to the Apostles' Creed. But much like many misunderstandings that we have about faith at times, just a simple reading of Scripture kind of clarifies things. And so what we have to understand is Jesus, he, he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. And then he died. And so there's no more work required for our sin, such as Jesus going to hell and suffering for our sin there. Now, here is what we know. That very day, Jesus welcomed the criminal into his heavenly kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. And Christianity, what it teaches is that we are saved by grace through faith. There's nothing that we do that saves us from our sin. And I, I think this text just demonstrates this abundantly because what can a guy who's in his final hours of life nailed to a cross do to earn, merit, deserve salvation? Nothing. He's powerless to do anything. All he can do is trust and believe. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. Like, there, no, there's nobody so evil. There's nobody so vile, so wicked that they can't come to Christ even in their last minutes and receive forgiveness and grace. And so we don't know a lot about this repentant criminal, but what we do know is he made some poor choices in his life. Maybe he chose the wrong morals, the wrong behavior, the wrong crowd, but he's on the cross for some reason. But I want to ask you a question. Is he spending eternity paying the penalty for all the bad decisions that he made throughout his life? No. He's, he's experiencing just the opposite, that he is in heaven right now. Not, not, not back then, not in some future time, but right now he is in heaven experiencing a relationship with God the Father and God the Son and he's enjoying the fruit of the best choice he ever made. In the end, all of his bad choices and decisions were redeemed by a single good one. One good choice can offset a lifetime of poor ones. And the thief changed his mind about who Jesus was. He stopped simply following the crowd, but he looked at Christ, he examined Christ, and he said, no, that is a guy who is worth trusting my life and my eternity with and Jesus loved that man enough to die for his sins on the cross. And he loves you enough to do the same. And I, I want you to understand that when, when Jesus looks at you, I don't know what your relationship with him is, but he hasn't written you off. He doesn't view you as a lost cause. But he sees someone that he has died for, that he loves. But he also loves you enough to give you the choice as to how you want to respond to his death. C.S. Lewis he wrote, there are two, only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All those who are in hell choose it. 
No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe that the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom for which they have demanded. Again, I don't know what choices you've made in your life up to this moment, and I imagine there's some you're like, I'm proud of that choice, and there's others you're going, man, I'm not proud of that. There's some that, that you've gotten away with. There's some that you've paid a price for, and we've made We've all made bad choices in our lives from maybe a career choice, a financial choice, a relationship choice. And, and some you wish you could undo and some you fear kind of the end because you're going, I, I don't want to have to give an account to God for that decision. And today I want to invite you to actually make the most important decision you're ever going to make. Like the cross of Christ gives you the very thing you want, the very thing you need the cross of Christ is this opportunity to make one good choice that's going to offset a lifetime of poor decisions. But Jesus loves you enough to give you the choice as to where you'll spend eternity. But if you, if you confess him as Lord and Savior, if, if we accept him as Lord and Savior, if we, we do what Scripture says, we are baptized into him, it's then he says, you know what? Whether I come again or whether you go to be with me, you're going to be in paradise with me. So I want to invite you to make that decision if you've never made it. You can speak to me or, or to our lead pastor, Greg, as you're leaving. If you're watching online, I'd invert, invite you to uh, fill out a Connect card and let us know that you'd like to make that decision. Somebody will follow up with you.